0: wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at ZibbyOwens.com. but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at ZcastNetwork.com, and definitely check out those shows as well. ¶¶ go to ZivyOwens.com. My Al-Nakib is the author of An Unlasting Home, a novel... Mai was born in Kuwait and spent the first six years of her life in London, Edinburgh, and St. Louis, Missouri. She holds a PhD in English literature from Brown University and is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Kuwait University. Her academic research focuses on cultural politics in the Middle East, with a special emphasis on gender, cosmopolitanism, and post-colonial issues. Her short story collection, The Hidden Light of Objects, was published by Bloomsbury in 2014. It won the Edinburgh International Book Festival's 2014 First Book Award, the first collection of short stories to do so. Her debut novel, An Unlasting Home, is now out, and she divides her time between Kuwait and Greece. Welcome, May. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your novel, An Unlasting Home.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Would you mind, please, telling listeners a little bit about what your book is about and what inspired you to write it?
2: Okay, so An Unlasting Home is a multi-generational saga that traces the lives of five pretty formidable women spanning from the early 20th century to 2013 and ranging across the Middle East from Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Kuwait, to India and the United States. The the story, the novel opens when the protagonist, Sara, who is a professor of philosophy at Kuwait University, is accused of blasphemy under a new law designating it a capital crime. And so as she awaits trial, she begins to look back, trying to, realizing that she has to reckon with her personal history, her personal past, her family's past, but also the history of her country. And so she begins to untangle the generational lines of the women who shaped her, her grandmothers, Yasmin and Lulwa, her mother, Nura, and her beloved Aya, Maria, who helped raise her. And so, you know, through through this process, Sara really, she it, it kind of allows her to come to terms with why she's been so stalled in her life, why she made the decision to return to Kuwait from the United States and really helps her figure out who she wants to become. I mean, in many ways, it's a novel about um, inherited trauma and migratory passage, loss, resilience, but also how women are able to overcome these burdens that, you know, that are political, pol- personal, historical in order to survive.
0: That's one of the best descriptions I've heard. Oh. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that it's like, that's fantastic. It has every element you would want to read in a book. <laughs> oh, yay. That's good. I know you, you start on and you write with such vivid prose. So it makes you feel like there you are like in the, uh, when Sarah goes to prison and she has to, and she sees all the messages of the women that they've written all over as like, sort of lifelines reaching out to each other and has to come to terms with the fact that she's living, not unlike, by the way, what's sort of going on in the United States these days, but in a world where the rules have suddenly shifted. And how do you make sense of that? How do you give a lecture in school and suddenly it lands you in prison and execution is on the table? I mean, that's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. I
2: mean, for me, the, you know, you asked about the inspiration. You know, I knew when I finished my collection of short stories, when it was published, Hidden Light of Objects, I had a sense that I wanted to write a novel. And I knew I wanted to write something expansive and teeming. I wanted it to be about, you know, family based in the Middle East. And, and, and really, a, I wanted it to be in many ways a, women's, a, a story of women, their relationships, their friendships and so on. I I didn't really know exactly where I was going with it, but I I had already started writing these two characters, Dulwa and Yasmin. And I wrote it back and forth, uh, you know, moving between their stories. I didn't, you know, write the full stories and then kind of, and I didn't know how they would connect. I just trusted that somehow their stories would overlap. But then in 2013, the parliament of Kuwait passed this law uh, making blasphemy a capital crime. And this was just such a shock to me. I mean, Kuwait had been becoming increasingly conservative socially and politically after the liberation in 1991 and beyond, but this just was really unprecedented and it was just such a shock to to me personally but to many people and I just remember literally collapsing on the couch not knowing like how is this going to affect me and I selfishly started thinking how what about the classes that I teach is there material in the classes that I teach at university that might be construed construed as blasphemous and absolutely hundred percent there was you know I, I just knew that there could be material that might be looked at that way. But then I also started thinking about the chilling effect this was going to have on journalists and on political activists. And I think really it was the next day that I wrote a version of what would turn into that the first chapter of the novel, the Sada chapter. And it then kind of came to me this idea that, well, this these stories of the women that I was already writing, that was set much earlier historically, we're going to somehow connect. And Sara was going to be the pivot, you know, holding all of this together, all of, all of these women's stories together. So that was really the beginning of the process for me.
0: When you went back to teaching after the new law was in place, did you make substantive changes to your curriculum? Not a thing.
2: Not a thing because I, I, I don't believe that as a, te- as a teacher at university, one should be afraid. I feel like I should be able to, you know, and I know that people, you know, we have to be careful and and watch what we say, but I really don't feel like the university space should be that kind of space. It should be a place where you can make mistakes, both as a professor and as a student, that you can say things, that this is the place where you can, you know, experiment, that you can... You know, challenge your students, and even have your students challenge you, and know that it's a place where um, transformation is going to happen for these young students, and and then for yourself as well. And I just figured, you know, if I'm going to get in trouble for something that I say, let it happen. I just, and and I do feel that because my students have a sense that I'm out there with them on the edge, kind of experimenting with these ideas, that they. Trust the situation. Even if they don't agree, I've never felt threatened. I mean, knock on wood, (laughs) it hasn't happened yet, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't change any of the, of the, of my, my syllabi or any of the ways that I presented myself or my ideas in the classroom.
0: And did you know, did you have friends or colleagues or anybody who actually were entrapped by this new rule?
2: So the rule was overturned very quickly by the ruler of the country, by the emir. So that was really great, yes. So there are still penal codes. I mean, not, because again, in Kuwait, capital punishment is exceedingly rare. It doesn't happen often. So it was, again, why it was such a shock to everybody. But luckily that law was over, that amendment was overturned. But there are very conservative, very rigid rules and codes and penal codes. And a few years ago, A philosophy professor at Kuwait University was accused of blasphemy, and it was kind of crazy. I know her, and I called her up, you know, and I said, look, I'm writing this novel, and I've been writing it for many years, so it's not going to be based on you, you know, but this, I can't believe this is happening. And she said, I know, this is absolutely crazy. But again, somebody accused her, and the prosecution took the case they shouldn't have. It was a very weak and illegitimate case, and eventually it was thrown out. But, I mean, this professor had to to really live with this worry for two to three months, you know, and have to has to defend herself and speak up. And she was very political. She eventually even ran for parliament herself. So she wasn't afraid or, or nervous about it. But it is nerve wracking. It is scary, you know, to have this kind of accusation made against you. And, um, you know, it, and we have lot many different kinds of, you know, everything is becoming more conservative in general and usually it's directed against women. I mean, we've had lots of things happen recently in in the last few months and I think it's obviously also going on in the US and I think what happens in the US reverberates in the rest of the world too, you know, and it gives people a kind of energy to pursue things that women would rather not
3: (laughs) happen.
0: Great. Perfect. Love it. (laughs) Uh, Take me back a little bit about growing up and where you grew up and how you became a teacher and a writer and like, give me the, the life, how we got here part of your life. Sure.
2: So I grew up, I was born in Kuwait. Um, I spent the first six years of my life out of Kuwait because my, my father was working on his medical residency and my mom was, She got her bachelor's degree. So we spent, uh, I spent most of my early childhood in the United States and we returned to Kuwait when I was six years old and then went to an American school in Kuwait because my mom believed in the American system of education and she wanted her daughters in the American school. And that was very rare at the time, but she really insisted. And so it happened. And so I went to school in Kuwait and grew up there. We would spend about three months of the year in the U.S. So I did have a foot in both places, it felt like. I went to Kuwait University and got my bachelor's degree in literature and then completed my doctorate in the U.S. at Brown University and spent many years in in the States at that time. And I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I've been writing since I was a kid. I was a voracious reader. And I think for me, the two were connected. And I knew that was what I wanted to do. But growing up in Kuwait, I didn't have a sense that that was an option. You know, there wasn't a creative writing program. That just was not a thing that I even knew existed. So I always imagined, well, I'd have to have a career doing something and then write on the side. And literature seemed the closest thing to it. And so that's what I did. But the thing is, studying literature academically really takes you away from writing it. You know, so for for a long time, I felt very bifurcated and I just teaching took over my life and, you know, writing, doing all of that academic work took over and I really didn't feel like I could write, you know, and it was only after I got my job at Kuwait University that I felt I could turn to writing fiction. And, you know, I I still dream of a time when I can do that full-time because teaching does make it very difficult to carve out the time and space to be able to write. But that is my first love.
0: (laughs) But at least you can maybe help develop the talent of your students, right? Can you? I feel like it's so important to when you're in school and when you're just getting going and writing from a young age or in college or grad school or whatever, just to have that vote of confidence from some sort of teacher, I think puts you on a different track than if nobody notices your writing. Right. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and i i get I get a lot back from my students. Uh, you know, I we so te- First of all, teaching literature is a delight. You know, so teaching is hard work, but being able to teach the books that I love, putting together courses, and having you know introducing things that I love to to my students and having them engage with it for the first time, that's all wonderful. And then you know the discussions in the classroom and it keeps you on your toes. All of that is, is really wonderful. And it's as good for me. I mean, I hope it's a good experience for my students. I get lovely feedback from, from them, you know, but it's, it's, it is a wonderful thing to be part of, you know, I, I really feel, but it isn't, again, it's not, I, I, I love to teach. And I think in some ways, what's interesting is writing, there's a similar kind of, reciprocity in the sense that you're writing alone for so many years, you're working on this project all by yourself, but at the end, you know, the aim is that somebody reads it and that it's just such a wonderful thing just to think that someone's going to be reading the words that you put together and that it's such a kind of intimate, relate. it's not a relationship, but it just feels so wonderful. And I think there is a similar kind of reciprocity with your, with the students, a kind of back and forth that is really fulfilling.
1: 15, 15, 15, just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. So your book spans multiple generations and different families and even your family tree is like four pages long. How <laughs> did you keep everything straight? Did you have massive outlines? Did you use note cards, whiteboard? Like how did you structure and did you have the whole thing planned out? Excuse me. Did you have the whole thing planned out before you started?
2: I didn't actually, I don't write that way. So I, when I begin a project I think of the writing process as a kind of capture. I'm captured by something, you know, it may be a place, it may be a person, it may be an event, it could be something very specific or something very ephemeral, a kind of mood or, you know, the slant of light, something captures me and then I begin, my mind begins to wander and, you know, I sort of follow... I go down rabbit holes, some of which may be productive, some which may turn up nothing at all. And so the whole thing feels very open, very nebulous at the start of a project. But then as things begin to come together, they begin to gel I do, you know, I I begin to think about how things will be structured, form becomes very important to me. So what kind of form is going to be able to hold all of this? So with the story that I knew as I started writing and things started to accrue, and it was getting thicker and thicker, I knew that I would, you know, I, I needed a form for it to hold together for me. And as I'm writing it, and this the three parts that helped me, you know, so it's in the first part is uh, Lulua and Yasmin and Sara interspersed. And then the second part is Noura, her mother, and Maria, uh, her caregiver her caretaker. And then the third part would belong to Sara. And there was the sense for me that there was a movement, you know, and Sara moving through the through their stories and then coming out at the at the end. So that the reader would be moving along with her as well as she's collecting these old stories and also coming to terms with her current situation. So then the maps they build, so the the family trees, I would kind of map it all out. And the family tree that is in the book, my version of that has all the dates, all the events. I would just add, you know, one by one, everything that happened to all the different characters. So it was big. It was big. And then when you make a mistake... Or if you get something wrong and then you have, but it helps to have it all there, but it is really crazy. You have to go back and kind of make sure everything is is aligned. So, but those ma- that, I, I think of it as a map rather than a tree, but the map that really helped me keep it all together.
0: Very impressive. <laughs> wow, <laughs> oh what are your own relationships like with the women in your life and your family and your family tree and your generations before you.
2: So my immediate, my immediate uh, connection to women are my three sisters. So we're very close. And I was very close to my one of, I mean, to both of my grandmothers, but I lost one of the, my grandmothers a bit earlier. And I had more of a chance to get to know my grandmother uh, on my father's side. And, you know, she told me, story, she was a storyteller, much like Yasmin, I think if, if we were to connect her and, some of the lines of, you know, there are things that you can trace between the stories in An Unlasting Home and My Life, but they're not the same people. You know, is not me and Yasmin is not my grandmother, but there are similarities in terms of just where they lived, where they were born and so on. But then obviously the characters took off and became their own people. I was very close to my mom, to my grandmother's, the stories, you know, that they've, that they, you you somehow sort of just get, collect those stories without thinking of them as such until you're older, I think, and then you realize how these layered stories that are repeated over the years have shaped you. You know, so I think in that I share that a bit with Sarah. Maybe I was a little bit more aware than Sarah collecting the stories, maybe because I was a writer or had a sense of myself as a writer that. I really kept tabs <laughs> on what people were saying. <laughs> and
0: what do you like to read? Like, what are you reading now?
2: Ooh, I, right here, Elena Ferrante's *Frantumalia*. So I haven't read that before, and I, it's fascinating. I love her writing. Gosh, that's always the question I dread. I'm sorry. Don't answer. Are, <laughs> you, no, you know, because <laughs> there's so much. Oh, you, I- you're like, oh no, I'm going to say. Kafka is, writers that are important to me, Kafka has always been important to me, Um, Kundera, Kutzea, Anais Nin growing up, she was, you know, she opened up a world that I didn't know existed when I was maybe too young to know, but I did anyway. (laughs) So many others, so many others. Wow.
0: And what, what now? Are you writing another book, more short stories? What's, what's coming next?
2: So I'm just at the start of a new uh, not what I'm hoping will be a novel. I'm at that capture stage where I've I've kind of been captivated by this island in Kuwait called Feilika. and it's an island that has a history that goes back uh, to the Bronze Age and is connected to the Dilmun dynasty so it's 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 old and ancient and there are remains from, you know, ancient Greek uh remains and ruins there and pagan shrines. So it's it's a place that is is very layered. It was inhabited by Kuwaitis until 1990. 90, during the invasion, they were forced out. And then in 1991, after the liberation, they weren't allowed to come back for security reasons. So the government bought back their properties or bought their properties and compensated and just emptied the island out. And so now when you go there, it's an island of abandoned, destroyed buildings. It's pretty empty. I mean, there's there's some, I, I wouldn't call it tourism, but there's like a small resort there. But really, you can wander this empty, abandoned island, and it's just got these buildings. You can go into the buildings, and there are, you know, things that are have been left. For, for decades now, and it's just a kind of stark, beautiful, haunt. it seems like a haunted place to me. So I'm I'm doing research around this place, and it's, you know, it's ancient history, but also what happened. And I, so it's set on that island, and I'm thinking it's going to be set about 10 years or so into the future. Something transpires on the mainland, and one of the inhabitants, a woman, I think in her 50s, will be forced to come back. To the island, and we'll see <laughs> what happens. But I'm just working now just on the research. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm just reading around the island. Wow, sounds nice. Whisk me wet. Be <laughs> <keep me> there. Do <laughs> <laughs> you have any advice for aspiring authors? I do I would say read widely read as much as you can and I would say read in translation read books in translation read books from the past and to read books that are not like the book you want to write I think that it's really helpful for writers to read outside their comfort zone I think you know I think it it can be inspiring it can be it can just open ways of thinking that you might not have registered and I think it can be humbling, which is not a bad thing either.
0: Okay. <laughs> so um, that would be it. <laughs> um, well, May, thank you so much. Thank you for talking about an unlasting home. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather today. Usually a bit more animated, but thank you for coming oh. on. And, you know, the, the thing I'm mostly taking away is that even with, honestly, life-threatening rules, you're so brave as to stay the course and teach what you want and share the information. And it's empowering and amazing. And then here you are writing this huge book, which is beautifully written and so in depth. And it's just, it's really awesome. Thank you
2: so, so much. Thank you for those lovely words. And I hope you feel better
0: Thank you. <laughs> soon. Okay. Thank you, Thank so you. Okay. Take so care. Bye. bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.